thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 154. That's right, after a three-month diversion, we're back to our usual format. And this week, it's all about the technological advancements being fielded on U.S. Navy fighters that are simplifying notoriously difficult aircraft carrier landings. From a pilot perspective, what it does is it gives you the ability to make very, very precise and very rapid corrections to glide slope with very minimal input. That's really the benefit of PLM is that it just makes everything much easier. And for you crotchety old cynics out there like me thinking, that's all fine and good, but those young pilots better know how to land on an aircraft carrier the old-fashioned way just in case. Well, stay tuned because you may just be surprised. So if you go to the CV recovery matrix, the only malfunctions you will have with the aircraft where you cannot engage PLM are also the exact same malfunctions you'll be told to divert anyway. So across the board, in whatever degraded mode you're in, you are going to be able to engage some mode of precision landing mode to recover on the aircraft carrier. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and yes, we are back to our usual format, but not for long, as you will learn later on the show. And speaking of later on the show, we have a great interview coming up. We always say that. But it's with our co-host, Matt Arney, callsign Flounder, and a friend of his who has extensive experience with what was once called the Magic Carpet, but is now known simply as PLM, or Precision Landing Mode. Anyway, Flounder and OJ will be along shortly. But first, the usual announcements and some listener questions. And as far as announcements go, I mean, gosh, it's been about three months since we had a real episode here. So hope you are doing well. Lots to cover. And yes, the last three months have been a bit of a blur for me. We had the Fights On series. Big shout out to Scott Chafian, Scott Morris, and Rob Grady and the whole team that put that together on behalf of Cubic, who is a good sponsor with us and a good partner. So I learned a lot in that series. It was good to hear Sunshine back and a few other voices. So hope you did as well. That being said, some of you said, wait, what happened to Jello? Well, as I told you at the end of episode 153, I was planning to take that break and work on a few things for what the Fighter Pilot Podcast will look like in 2023. And we'll talk about that a little later. And so I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, if you were looking for it on our website or YouTube channel, you didn't find it. Now, you did hear from me briefly at the end of October on the Electronic Warfare Testing bonus episode we did with Ken Katz. Some folks enjoyed that one. As well, on November 23rd, Boat made a return and had a bonus on the movie Devotion, which I thought was a great story. And of course, we uh, had some help from our friend Knack, who interviewed his friend, John French, about the F4U Corsair. So I really enjoyed that one. In other updates, you might recall we had a 5th of July special last summer with our friend Rukas, who we said was going to Washington. 
Well, unfortunately, the uh, election did not quite work out the way he had hoped. And so, Rukas, I know you would wish for something different, but hey, man, congratulations, at least for a strong fight and for throwing your hat in the ring, right? Theodore Roosevelt talks about credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again. (laughs) That certainly encourages me. Rukas, I know you'll do well with whatever you try next. And in the meantime, we'll see you at headquarters in Atlanta. All right, what else? Over November Veterans Weekend on the 12th, I believe it was, uh, you probably saw, like I did, the footage out of Dallas of the midair collision between the B-17 and the King Cobra, and, and it just broke my heart. I watched that several times, and not only did we lose six precious souls, but we lost two irreplaceable aircraft, and that is just a tragedy all around. I know they're already starting to look at what happened, and my hope is that we can learn from this as far as the vertical and lateral deconfliction for events such as this in the future. I did reach out to our old point of contact, Al Benzing. You remember him from the B-29 episode? He's over at the Commemorate Air Force, and he did say they were hurting pretty badly, and I uh, sent condolences from all of us here at the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And he appreciated that. Well, let's see. Not too long ago, Northrop Grumman and the U.S. Air Force announced the B-21 Raider, the strategic bomber. And I don't know about you. I watched that on YouTube and listened to all the folks. And it was pretty interesting. It was curious that, you know, they only show up from certain angles. And that's to be expected for now. So we'll see how that does. And when it starts flight testing. And then not to be outdone, a couple days later, the U.S. Army announced the Bell and Lockheed Martin Tilt rotor successor to the UH-60 Blackhawk, which is a big deal because I bet they'll order a lot of these. If I read correctly, it's the Bell and Lockheed Martin V-280 Valor. And it looks a little bit like, I guess, to the layperson, an Osprey, but you can see it's a little skinnier and a little different. So yeah, it'll be curious to see. I will be uh, interested to see, I should say, what the Valor looks like as it starts really flying in greater numbers. Now, as far as listener questions go, because of the long hiatus between episodes, I responded directly to most emailed questions and just answered them there. But we do have a number of phone calls, so let's work through those now, starting with a phone call from Reed. Hey, Jello. My name is Reed, calling from Columbus, Mississippi. I just had a question about pilot training through the Navy. I'm currently in Air Force pilot training now, going through the new syllabus here, flying the mighty T-6 for us. We track with the T-6, and then based on our performance, we move to the T-38 to go fighters or the T-1 to go through the heavy track. I know you flew a bunch of different aircraft in training, and at what point do you get that decision to go to fighters? In the Air Force world, we have the drop night, which is kind of that big moment where you find out what the airframe you're assigned to. And uh, just curious how that works for the Navy side. Thanks for all you do. I love the show. Keep it up. Thanks. All right, Reed. Well, congratulations first off on being in Air Force Flight School. I hope you enjoy it and do well. Now, it could be different today, but when I went through, everyone in Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard Flight School started in T-34s in primary. Depending on how well you did, that was when you selected your general platform, whether jets, helicopters, maritime patrol, or E-2 and C-2. And yes, in my case, I was lucky to select jets. I flew the T-2C Buckeye and TA-4J Skyhawk. And at the end of jets at that time, I could have selected F-14s, S-3 Vikings at the time, and the EA-6B Prowler. I selected the F-A-18, which was my first choice. And these days, I think it's mostly... But variants of the F-18, i.e. the Super Hornet and the Growler, and then the F-35. So it could be a little different now. That's how it was when I went through. 
and good luck again. All right, next, let's take another phone call. Hey, Joe. My name's Christian. I'm currently living in Mississippi. My question to you today is regarding validity in the BVR environment and exercises like Red Flag. For example, I'm wondering kind of how would a red aircraft know whether it's been shot at by a blue aircraft and that the success of shot is a kill. The red aircraft jinx, who determines whether it's a successful jink or not. And if the kill is valid, how is Blair then informed that the specific red aircraft is no longer a player in the exercise and that its radar signature can be ignored? In general, I guess I just would kind of like to know more about how BVR is dealt with in large-scale mock exercises because I can imagine that, you know, in a large-scale exercise, keeping track of all that stuff gets pretty complicated. Anyways, thanks so much for taking this question. Appreciate it. All right, Christian, great question. And you're right. This is what is not easy about air-to-air training, whether red flag or elsewhere. That is why it takes professional fighters and adversaries to get it right because we can't just have falling wreckage, right? We're not going to actually shoot people down and destroy real aircraft. Now, once in a while, off the coast of Florida, you might have exercises where they, in fact, get to shoot down drones. But for the most part in training, we have something that's called shooter-controlled kill removal. So that is, Christian, let's say I'm on the good guy side and you're my adversary support today. And I call for you, let's say there's two of you in range. And I say, you know, I'll use my call sign and all that. But I say something like, kill Southman lead group. Okay, and let's say you're in that lead group and you've got a flight of two and you say, okay, hey, so-and-so on the left there as you're coming at me, maybe you're dead. Kill remove. Now, you're taking it on faith that I've done my job and in fact have a valid shot at you. And at that point, if we're wrong, well, then when we get back in the debrief, there could be some fines or fees involved if I look and say, oh, crud, my radar didn't work after all, or they did a maneuver I didn't observe real time. And so it's up to me though, to make that call. And in the end, there could be a financial penalty just to hurt you a little bit in the pocketbook if you get it wrong, because we want to do it right. And so there's also shooter control kill removal with bandit assist. So I might just say, hey, kill single in the lead group, but maybe I don't know which. And so now you can take an inventory of what's happening in the lead group. Perhaps there's two of you, maybe one of you is spiked. Maybe the other has an electronic warfare pod of some sort and is jamming. So you might think, okay, well, the guy who's spiked is not the one carrying the pod and the pod's going to have a little protection and effectiveness against missiles anyway. So we'll remove the guy who's spiked. And there's also on large force exercises, and you mentioned Red Flag. Hopefully you listened to our Fights On series where we talked about that. Well, in that case, you'll have range training officers, RTOs, and they will adjudicate both sides. So you'll have one for the blue, one for the red. And on the blue side, when I call a kill, I will tell that to the RTO who will acknowledge it and he'll pass it to the red RTO. And he might even tell him, hey, that is in the group uh, who are call sign dogs or snakes or vipers or whatever the case might be. And then the red RTO says, hey, we got a single kill into you. Or he might say, hey, dogs, the South dog is dead. Or he might look at a list that he keeps and says, you know what? We're going to Monte Carlo one of those two today because missiles are always 100% effective. And so when you Monte Carlo, that's just a way of saying, nope, even though the fighter called that a good kill, we're going to say in the end game, it did not guise and fuse on the bandit. So that is, again, very difficult part of BVR training, and it requires a lot of discipline on both sides. And in the end, when you come back in the debrief, if you find out that you call the kill on something that, in fact, did maneuver or jinked or whatever the case might be, well, then you might owe a small penalty. All right. I hope that helps. And let's take another phone call. Hey, Jello. This is Tim from San Francisco, and I've got a question about call signs. We all know that fighter pilots aren't allowed to have cool call signs, 
you like to use the spine ripper example, but I'm wondering about flight lead call sign. I was told that once you become a flight lead, this might be an Air Force thing or a Navy thing, I'm not sure, but the flights that you lead have the call sign that's assigned to you. So for instance, maybe your Cobra or maybe your Weasel, and then your flights are Cobra 1, Weasel 1. Come to think of it, I think that might be an Air Force thing, or maybe I just made that up entirely. I think maybe the Navy uses the squadron, like each squadron has its own call sign. Anyway, help set me straight, because clearly I am very confused. Thanks, and keep up the great work. I listen to every episode of your show. All right, Tim. No, I don't think you're crazy here. I think you might be just referring to a bygone era. I think if I remember correctly, yeah, even before Vietnam, but maybe during Vietnam, for example, if I was flying back then, I might go out and have Jell-O 1 flight, and uh, my wingman might be Jell-O 2, 3, and 4. But you don't hear about that too much anymore. Generally, the way I think of call signs is you break it up in one of three ways, ashore, afloat, and deployed. So ashore, right? So to your point, in VFA 94, when I was a department head, we were the mighty shrikes, but our air traffic control call sign that the base expected us to use was Hobo. So that was just what we used for getting back and forth from Lemoore to the training ranges. And that is what, let's say, Oakland Center would call us because that's what we'd call ourselves. And they were used to that. Now, if I'm leading, let's say, a four-ship against the previous caller talking about that air-to-air training, well, once we get into the area and we're going to use a tactical call sign, and air traffic control doesn't know about that. It's just what we use in training. Well, now I could, yeah, theoretically use Jell-O call sign, but I'm not. I might use the Cobra call sign that you mentioned. So I might be Cobra 11 through 14. Within that flight, yeah, it's me and let's say Slappy and Frumba and Grand, and the four of us are always going to have our personal call signs, but we try not to use those in training if we can help it. Now, when you get on the ship afloat, then you'll also use your side number quite frequently because the boat just finds it's much easier to use that when you are landing and taking off, and that's how they can keep track of who's who and where they're going and when they're back, etc. And then let's say we're on the carrier, and now we are in some place where we are operating under an air tasking order or an ATO. Well, then, unlike the tactical call sign Cobra that I can choose, now the ATO will dictate, hey, when you go up over Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever you're going today, well, your ATO call sign might be Lopez. I think I once used over Iraq. That might have been when I was in VFA 97. But at any rate, generally, the folks that make the ATO will have a handful of call signs they might use for each squadron. And it might be Lopez or Chevy or yes, Cobra or something cool. But that's pretty much it. And you're right, Spine Ripper is one of my favorites. I use that example all the time. Same with Assassin and Killer and a few others. And yeah, I'm just jello. Yeah, it is what it is. All right, next, let's take another phone call. Hey, Jello. This is Josh from Montana. I'm a C-130H Loadmaster. VH is a legacy model. My question here is, What's some uh, personalities of the aircraft you've flown? Do you have memorable ones? For example, when I was down in training, there was an aircraft that would always break all the time. You know, there's aircraft that like to yaw to the left, yaw to the right, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm just curious if you have any memorable ones. I appreciate all you do. Love your podcast. Fight on, man. And yeah, hopefully I get to talk with you one day. Peace. Well, good question, Josh. And this is probably as good a spot as any to welcome today's co-host who can help answer this one. Flounder, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thanks, Jello. It's great to be here. 
you know, let's see here. You have the first interview following our fights on hiatus for the last three months. And you were the last episode before we went into it back in September. And at the time, if I remember correctly, you were starting a new job, right? How's that going? Yeah, it's going great. Thanks. I started management consulting out here in the Seattle area in the tech industry. And so a lot to learn there, mm-hmm. but it's so great to join you on the Fighter Pilot Podcast and help out here so I can maintain that connection with those roots I've got. <laughs> well, and you always do such a great job that I just enjoy uh, sharing your interviews with everyone who listens. So getting back to Josh's question, you know, my first ever flight, Josh, was in an F-18B in flight school and the jet had the name Christine <laughs> painted on the tail. And if anyone doesn't remember that movie, uh, you know, that should tell you something. But otherwise, I don't know, the F-18 is it's sort of an electric jet. I mean, it, there were some subtle differences, but I don't really notice I don't recall noticing, I should say, significant peculiarities between the jets within a given squadron. But Flounder, this is part of the reason I wanted to bring you in here. You flew the F-14 Tomcat, and I have to think it probably had amongst its fleet some interesting uh, differences, maybe? Yeah, I would definitely say so. And again, it goes to that F-14 versus the Super Hornet. I was in the back seat, so two different aspects of that. One is pilots all the time. I remember them talking about, hey, we're going out to fly 104 and you know that's got particular things about it or whichever. So they definitely developed their own personalities. And then in the backseat too, there were some jets that you knew that you're just going to have to work a little harder on the circuit breakers or something like that. And then going into the Super Hornet, much less of that. Although I do remember there were some kind of personalities and maybe after a period of time, with maintenance, we were able to groom those back out to make it more moderated. So, mm-hmm. but less of the personalities with the newer aircraft. Yeah. I would say any peculiarity I ever remember, and I always have a hard time getting that word out, is simply that if there was a gripe of some sort that they never quite figured out, right? It would come back and come back and then they'd pull this or chase these wires or something else. And once they finally found the problem, then it was gone. But for that period of time, whether it was a couple flights, a couple days, whatever, you might have something that's kind of perplexing everyone until they solve it. But otherwise, I mean, they mostly flew the same. And I attribute that to the digital fly-by-wire flight controls and the FADEC and everything else. Yeah. Pretty vanilla. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation for it. All right. Let's take yet another phone call. Hi, Joe. My name is Will. I'm a midshipman from Maryland. I'm in an ROTC unit at college, and I'm in my senior year. And I was really excited just a few weeks ago. I got selected as a student naval aviator. I'm really, really excited. And first of all, I wanted to say thanks so much. All the motivation that you guys give to myself and I'm sure people like me who are in similar positions, hearing about the pilots, hearing about the aircraft. Every time I listen, it's awesome. And I can't thank you guys enough. The question that I would like to pose is just if you have any pointers for flight school, anything about the aircraft, the T-6, or anything about studying for different tests and things like that, trying to make sure that I'm ready when I get down there. So uh, if there's anything that you have on that, I would really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Keep it up. Really love the podcast. All right. Well, first off, congratulations. You've got an awesome future ahead of you, and I'm jealous. But secondly, this comes up so often that you actually inspired me to finally write a blog about it. And I put it on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com under the musings section. And I uh, somewhat cleverly titled it, how to succeed in flight school with a question mark. Don't ask me (laughs) with an exclamation point, because 
I probably went through before you were born and what worked then may or may not work now, but the story is from what worked for me in so much as I was successful. And so go check it out and hopefully it will help. And as far as the T6, sorry, I can't help you with that. I didn't fly it and don't know anything else about it. So you'll just have to get that from the folks ahead of you or whatever you can do on your own. What do you think, Flounder? Anything else? I haven't had a chance to read your blog yet, but I look forward to that. And, you know, we've talked about it a little bit. And I think the things that you put in there are timeless. In fact, in the interview coming up, we're going to talk about some of the changes in how we train naval aviators. So Will is going to experience some of that change. But those key elements, studying, being diligent, cooperating together, all those kinds of things are going to remain the same, even though there's some better tools and different approaches in how we're training naval aviators. Okay. Well, let's take our final phone call then for the day. Hello, this is Dutch from Lodi, California. An observation and looking if maybe my suspicion is correct. I read about an F-22 that was leaving Fallon and just at rotation, he retracted before he had adequate airspeed and he settled back down and came to a skidding stop. He also had a call sign that kind of drew attention to himself, too. And I see videos. I'm just watching one. And I noticed the F-22, it's really not that far off the runway. He has positive rate, and he's retracting that gear. And I'm thinking, is there a V&E speed, a don't exceed speed with the gears retracted? Is that why I'm seeing them retracted so quick? Or is that just one of them things that they think is cool that they all as a community do because it does look cool? And that's my question. Is there a reason why the F-22 retracts landing gears so early after taking off? And as always, one of my favorite podcasts, I just enjoy listening to it, great content, and all the power to you. Thank you. All right, Dutch, thanks for the call. So the mishap you're referring to happened in Fallon, Nevada, in April of 2018. And according to the investigation, it was attributed to pilot error. Now, I assume there's a gear speed on the F-22. It's 250 knots for the F-A-18. I don't know what it is for the Raptor, but I don't believe that was at play here. What I guess, and I didn't study the evaluation of the investigation, my guess was that it was a celebratory event, the grad 1v1 that they have at Top Gun. And the pilot that went out just frankly wanted to look shit hot. And he was probably used to flying somewhere much lower and maybe not as hot that particular day. And so the muscle memory of, okay, I should rotate about now and I can put the gear up and this is the performance I should get. Well, it didn't work that day because he was up a lot higher and the air was thinner. Plus it was hot. Unfortunately, we all know what the result was. He ended up settling back onto the runway and damaging the F-22. Didn't hear if it ever flew again. I would assume it did. But yeah, it was a bummer. Now, regarding your... I don't know what to call it, accusation or because there's a guy on YouTube that also took some issue, I think, with, oh, look at him. He's using a Top Gun call sign. Well, at the grad 1v1 event, just like all the events in the class, the students use a Top Gun call sign. And so if he was Top Gun 6-1 or whatever he was, that was a totally legitimate air traffic control call sign. So I don't see any reason why people should assign any value or error in his judgment because of his call sign. And maybe I'm misinterpreting what you're suggesting, but yeah, he was using a Top Gun call sign and that was totally legit. What do you think, Flounder? You remember that one? I vaguely remember that happening, but I think your comments are right on. I didn't go to Top Gun, but I've been around that. It's not the first incident that's happened in the Grad 1v1, but yeah, everybody goes out with the Top Gun call signs. 
And it's certainly not the uh, first time that, unfortunately, somebody's retracted the gear early, just did it in a newer airplane. So uh, it's unfortunate. Well, and again, right, if these guys were coming from, I don't know where they were coming from, but let's say they were Tyndall or, or anywhere sea level, yeah. now you're up over 4,000 feet. That's right. If it's hot, it's like 5,000 feet. And even for a fighter like the F-22, that can make a difference. That sure can. Like you said, in that muscle memory, it sure makes a difference. Yeah, no doubt. All right, then let's get into your interview. And man, I really enjoyed this one. It's sort of varsity. So if you don't mind, Flounder, I want to give the listeners a quick summary of carrier operations because you're going to go right into the real detailed portions of it. You can either stop me if I get some of this wrong. I'll try to make it quick. Or you can take notes and correct me at the end. But essentially, fixed-wing carrier operations come in essentially three variants, case one, two, and three. Case one is daytime, good weather, where everyone shows up, but they're assigned by air wing and squadron altitude. So it could be 2,000 feet up to, I think, four or 5,000 feet. And you look for each other, and you can theoretically all come down and land without ever making a radio call. Now, you'll make them for safety, but if you do it right, you shouldn't have to make a call. And what happens is, at 2,000 feet, like Flounder, when you and I were in Air Wing 1, we were both at 2,000, you and your Tomcat, me and my Hornet. And whoever happened to be at the right position at the right time based on what it looked like on the flight deck, well, we would come down and break the deck. And we'd come into the break, we'd turn around and land. And part of that day case one pattern was a 17, as I remember it, but you guys keep saying 18. So let's call it 18 second groove at the end of that 180 degree turn where you land in the wires and then taxi clear. And then around 45 seconds later, so comes your wingman. And then if you broke the deck, let's say, in a flight of two Tomcats, well, then I've got to work it out so that my flight of two comes down. And even though I'm not in your flight, I want to break to land 45 seconds after your F-14 wingman. So that's roughly the case one. Case three, let's go to that next, is super bad weather or nighttime where you marshal way far away from the ship and you come down as singles and you basically do a straight in to the ball call. And so those last 18 seconds are just the most difficult part traditionally. And then case two is a hybrid where you marshal like case three, but you come down in no more than a section or two ship. And then you come into the break and then you come around and land. And so the point of what we're going to talk about today is really, you still have to do all those case one, two, and three patterns. But for those last 18 seconds, it really changes. I mean, I'm blown away by this flounder, but it really does change everything I remember my whole career. So first off, did I get that summary of Carrier operations, uh, okay? Yeah, I think that's great. And after listening to you do it, I'm ready to go out there and, uh, you know, bag some traps. <laughs> go back, huh? <laughs> but yeah, you're right. And it's a great scene setter because what we're talking about is so important in that last part of the flight, which for some aircrew out there, it can kind of overwhelm your thought throughout your whole flight, knowing that you got to deal with that last 17, 18 seconds of flight. And this really can take that out of your mind so you can focus more on the complex tactics and everything else that mm -hmm. we're putting on naval aviators so we can be successful out there. But you still got to get all that other stuff right for the approach and getting to that good start. Well, I think the listeners are really going to enjoy your discussion with OJ. So without any more delay, let's get to it. From the first days of Eugene Eli landing aboard USS Pennsylvania to the future of F-35s, FAXX, and MQ-25s landing aboard the 9th USS Enterprise, the people of naval aviation have worked to make this challenging and dangerous task 
as safe and routine as possible. An advancement years in the making, Precision Landing Mode, or PLM, does just that and potentially changes the way pilots are trained and operate around the ship and possibly the culture of naval aviation. Is PLM an evolution or a revolution? Our guest today, Captain Dan Catlin, was commanding the East Coast Fleet Replacement Squadron VFA-106 in early 2021 when naval aviation experienced a pivotal moment. He's now the Deputy Commander of Air Wing 8 in the midst of workups with Gerald R. Ford. I'd like to welcome OJ to the show. Hey, Flander, thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk about the goodness of PLM and kind of naval aviation uh, broadly. Absolutely. Always a great time getting a guy like yourself on here. I'm really looking forward to digging into your experience with PLM and your leadership with PLM and how it's changing naval aviation. But of course, let's get to know you. Let's let our listeners get to know you. Tell us where you're from, how were you commissioned, and how you got to where you are now. All right, so I'm not going to count how many years back that story begins, but it does start in Houston, Texas. Uh, I grew up in a small town, Laporte, Texas, and took a roundabout pathway to get to where I'm at right now. I'm actually a 1999 graduate of the Air Force Academy. Always wanted to be a naval aviator. My generation was one that was in the movie theaters at 10 years old, seeing uh, Tom Cruise in the original Top Gun. I thought, boy, the bug bit, and that's what I wanted to do. But my eyes were pretty horrible, and so I went to the Air Force Academy. I actually took my commission in the Air Force as a communications officer. And then uh, about six months into it, learned that the Navy was starting their PRK waiver program. And I thought, well, that's my last swing at the bat, so let me give that a go. Two years worth of paperwork and surgery and a few other things, uh, a couple obstacles. Finally showed up in API in Pensacola as JG. And then uh, that's how I ended up commissioning and then recommissioning some years later into the Navy. Yeah, that's amazing. I know a couple other people who did that cross-commissioning, but really amazing that you went through that process always with that in mind and then taking advantage of that opportunity with PRK. So you did API and then right into the Hornet community, right? I did. So API, I'd done the Corpus for uh, primary. I was one of the first classes to do uh, 245 uh, total syllabus down in Kingsville. And then from there, headed up to uh, Lemoore at VFA 125 for uh, training in the legacy, or I should call the classic F-18. <laughs> Ended up spending nearly 10 consecutive years there, first half of my career. All right. You get to command a Super Hornet Squadron or Hornet Squadron? Super Hornet Squadron, VFA-81 in Oceana. Okay. And then after that's done, what got you to being the RAG instructor? That's probably a great question. So post my command tour at VFA-81, I went up to D.C. to go to National War College. No expectation for anything on the backside. Nothing's promised. I just had the best tour of my career. I knew a couple things for sure. It wasn't going to get better than that. And I got to fly again. Boy, that was a real blessing, uh, if not a lottery ticket. And so I was in class in War College, and then uh, the command screen list came out. I opened it up in the middle of class to see which of my department heads made it. Very happy to see two names on there. And then I scrolled down to see, well, who's going to be the FRS CEO? And then I saw the mistake in the list, which is my name was on it. And I actually closed it. And I said, ah, there's going to be a corrected list coming out here soon. Two hours later, open it again, and lo and behold, my name's Aaron. I could not believe how incredibly lucky I was to have the opportunity to go to 106. That's really great. It's really fun to hear stories of how people find out about monumental things like that. I think a lot of people out there expect that CNO is calling people and stuff like that. And there are certain people who do get called, but really with that system, that's a great story for how you found out. And what a great job to go to. So you go into VFA 106, which is the East Coast. FRS, Fleet Replacement Squadron. At that time, were you guys still training the classic Hornet pilots as well as 
Super Hornets. So we had just gotten out of the business and uh, sundown all legacy flight operations for the fleet and FRS production. We had a very small footprint. BFC-12 was continuing to fly some of the legacy, but they have now transitioned to Super Hornets as well. But at the FRS, we had transitioned to a pure Super Hornet for us. So what time frame is this now that you went to 106? I checked in after War College in June of 19 and then went through my requal and then took over in November of uh, same year. So 2019. So now let's get into what we're really here to talk about, and that's the precision landing mode, which started coming out as Magic Carpet, I think, in the like 2016, 2017 timeframe, right? Yep. And so from your experience in the Sunliners... Who said Sunliners? There you go. <laughs> was PLM something that you guys started seeing at that point? It was. So it was newly introduced to the fleet when I was at 81. The first version of that, the Magic Carpet, didn't have what we call full redundancy. And so there are certain failure modes with hydraulics, flight controls, the AHAR system, attitude reference system that would prevent you from engaging PLM. So the major concern there was if we lose the ability to fly the manual passes, which you would have to under those circumstances, those malfunctions, you don't want to not do that for six months and all of a sudden need to fly a single engine approach, oh, by the way, in your first manual pass in 10 months. And so we did what was called a reverse currency to account for that. So you got to do a certain number of PLM passes, and then you had to do a reversion pass where you had to fly either auto or a manual pass to maintain that proficiency. Now we have a full redundancy with the operational flight program with the flight controls. Now we have full redundancy. So if you go to the CV recovery matrix in the, uh, in the PCL, the only malfunctions you will have with the aircraft where you cannot engage PLM are also the exact same malfunctions you'd be told to divert anyway. So across the board, no matter what happens, you know, whatever degraded mode you're in, you are going to be able to engage some mode of precision landing modes to recover on the aircraft carrier. That's interesting. I definitely want to get more into as much as we can about the system stuff as deep as we can go. We don't need to obviously build it. But as a pilot going through that adoption of PLM, what was that like for you? What does it look like from the pilot perspective? So you have to break that up into two categories. You got the younger pilot and the old pilot, which I'm the old <laughs> pilot, thing, right? I'm an old dog learning a new trick. And I'll tell you the challenge for the older pilots. I shouldn't speak for everybody. I should, I'll share my experience. I flew auto passes. And in the Rhino, you're basically stirring the pot with stick to constantly keep energy on the aircraft. Whereas now, the engineers recognize this, actually. And there's a blurb uh, written down out of Nathops where it says uh, pilots should resist the temptation to make multiple small corrections. And so to give you an idea of how easy it is, the only way you make it hard is if you make it hard. Because <laughs> the number of corrections you're putting into the aircraft, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they actually studied off of flight data that if a pilot were to fly an auto pass or a manual pass, there's something magnitude of 100 to 120 corrections in 18 seconds. That's a lot between left and right hand. Mm-hmm. I have flown passes in PLM where I've made two corrections in the entire 18 seconds. And the airplane stayed locked in on glide slope. That's amazing. From a pilot perspective, what it does, it gives you the ability to make very, very precise and very rapid corrections to glide slope with very minimal input. That's really the benefit of PLM is that it just makes everything much easier. Okay. You talked earlier about being able to select or engage PLM. So what are the interlocks and stuff that go into being able to then select it as a pilot? So it's a function of your flap switch position to engage PLM. So once you drop the landing gear, you drop the flaps to either half or full, 
most pilot techniques are when you see 150 knots in the HUD, you engage the auto throttle. And then when you see about 140, one, something less than 140, you hit the noticeable steering button, and you are in PLM. Okay. You're in the first mode of PLM, which is FPAW, or flight path attitude hold. And that is basically flying, it's described as auto throttles on steroids. Instead of making 30 corrections in auto throttles, you're making two because it's mechanized to hold the attitude and to capture a VSI as a result of that. You hit the noticeable steering button the second time, you get into what's called Delta Path. Delta Path, you do have to put the uh, ship speed into the aircraft on the upfront control. So you put in the ship speed, so when Paddles does the uh, Tower Paddles radio check, and he says working at 25 knots, he'll say 25 over a speed, and that number is going to be the ship speed, so everybody that's flying PLM can enter that speed into the aircraft. So now the aircraft has everything it needs to know, knows how fast the ship is moving away. You dial in the commanded glide slope, which is typically three and a half degrees, and it knows the two main variables in order to capture a glide slope and to land consistently at a certain spot, i.e. into the three wire on a Nimitz or between two to three on the F4 class. And that's it, just getting in. That's all you got to do is hit the button, and you are in PLM. Yeah. For listeners out there, the Tower Paddles radio check. So we're talking case one operations or even case three, because I think if I remember right, it's been a little while, but you'll hear that because you get it on both approach alpha and approach Bravo. So that's basically a paddles is making sure his comms are working and then B putting out that critical information as that event is getting ready to land. Yeah. I will say that the ship speed, I'm sure other people have a different opinion on it, but I don't think that the ship speed matters quite as much as long as you're within the ballpark. And that's because you still have to fly the ball. It's easier to do it's easier to get on glide slope. It's easier to maintain glide slope, but you still have to account for the burble. You have to account for lineup for sure. And so you still have to fly the ball. Whatever the ship speed is, you should still be using the ball as your primary reference. It's not necessarily you know, a 787 Dreamliner where you just say airplane land me at LaGuardia. It's not quite like that. It's pretty <laughs> close. There's still some flying to be done. So, mm-hmm. so now... Going back to engaging PLM, you talked about the process and using the nose wheel steering button for that and those speeds. So where you typically find yourself engaging it? Are you on the downwind to beam the ship? Where is that typically happening for you? Yeah, drop the gear, drop the flaps, 150. You may be in their perch turn, depending on how early you broke. Um, gauge all the throttles, hit the nose wheel steering button. And you want to get there kind of as soon as you can. The flight path attitude hold, the whole pass begins in the approach turn. And so off the 180 position, at the appropriate time, turning towards 90 through the first half of the approach turn, it used to be you kind of had to scan, instrument scan first half of the turn from the 180 to the 90. And so you're setting a specific BSI at each checkpoint. But you still have to fly the airplane to get there. Once you've engaged flight path attitude hold of the PLM, you can set it and forget it. So you set 100 BSI. And you can look out the window at the ship to kind of start scanning really early for lineup or how deep you're going to be. When you look back in the HUD, you are still going to see 100 VSI. It's going to lock that in for you because it's holding the flight path attitude and that comes in the associated VSI. And so even the approach turn is significantly easier than it used to be. And when you talk about setting the VSI, because once you engage that flight path attitude hold, you are adjusting that just by making stick inputs forward and aft. That's right. What are your throttles doing at that time? Like if you take that time where you can look out, read your magazine, check your Facebook, check your position off the 180. Uh, If you look down at your throttles, what are your throttles doing? 
So you're going to see little movements because it is still an auto throttle. You'll see little movements there where you're not going to see the movements where it gets a little bit strange. You can't put your left hand up on the towel bar or you know, rest your arm on the canopy. You still have to keep your hand on the throttle. And you'll feel it moving like it normally does in an auto throttle pass. If you have certain degraded systems, we have a backup mode of auto throttles because that's the whole key to engaging PLMs. You got to be able to have auto throttles engaged. And so you can master throttles as long as it's above idle, below mill, and hit the auto throttle button on the throttle, and it'll engage what's called a backup mode of the auto throttles. When that is engaged in the backup mode, it's weird because the throttles are not moving at all. Mm. And so for an old dog that's, you know, in my mind, the scan of feel is I should feel those things moving. They're not moving. And it's kind of a mental obstacle, you have to get over that. No, the airplane's telling me it has auto throttles engaged, have all the right symbology, but I'm not going to feel the throttles move. So that's the only time where it gets a little bit weird. But other than that, it, they, just, they move along with the uh, required power. That being said, what's really controlling glide slope control is not the throttles anymore. We have a system that came with PLM. It's called IDLC. It's the Integrated Direct Lift Control. And that's just a really fancy term for the flaps and ailerons are actually being commanded at very precise rates and positions to where you get almost instantaneous movement on glide slope. And so it used to be, if you're flying a manual pass with the throttles yourself, if you add power, come off on power, and then you add power and try to find the neutral power position. Once you've made that correction, you need to wait a couple of potatoes for that to manifest to a change in your glide slope. With PLM, with flaps and ailerons working with IDLC, that glide slope change is nearly instantaneous. Mm-hmm. And so you can make a correction on glide slope pretty quick and get, I guess you can call it instant gratification on the lens if you're a ball low to get yourself back onto glide slope. The technique of that, if you're in Delta Path, is literally, let's say, three balls high, and you want to get yourself back down on glide slope. The NATOP's prescribed technique is you push forward on the stick until you see a center ball, and you literally let go. <laughs> you let go, the flaps and ailerons at IDLC are working so quickly that it's going to recapture three and a half degree glide slope pretty much in an instant. That's interesting. So a couple of things there I'm thinking about. One is, as you push the stick forward in that scenario... Again, your angle of attack is staying constant. It's just all the control surfaces are moving all around to just increase your VSI to then capture where you're letting the stick go, right? Yeah, exactly right. So it's instead of like purely throttle management and thrust management to get you higher or lower on glide slope, it's the flight controls that are managing lift as opposed to thrust in order to put you into the glide slope that you want. And then for me, you know, and I'm sure you were in air wings with F-14s and S-3s that had... DLC in the F-14, it was the uh, spoilers that would pop up. And so, you know, it was really interesting watching folks work that because it was just elevator down, elevator up, just like you're describing here. But there's a lot of stuff moving on that F-18 to make that happen. Sure is. Yep. Well, that's great. So really interesting stuff from the pilot perspective. And then like you described, the throttles are moving unless they're in that other mode and you're keeping your hand there. And then once you hit the deck, you're going full throttle. And once you're weight on wheels, airplane's clicking out of the mode at that point, right? It, it absolutely is, just as if you were flying a normal auto pass. Mm-hmm. If you're doing an in touch and go, or I know that we'll get into the bolter numbers here, but if you do happen to bolter, you've got to reset all that stuff once you get on down one again, right? That's right. Well, that's great. I think that's a good synopsis from the perspective of the pilot there. Going back to the systems, 
Like, for example, when you talked about what was the other mode of the auto throttles that you get into where the throttles aren't moving? Yeah, it's called the uh, backup ATC. Okay, so the backup ATC, where the system is going right to the FADAC, right? I can't remember what FADAC, but it's just going right in. The, the computers are talking to each other and they're making things happen pretty much, right? Yeah, so FADAC, your pedostatic information, your AOA, all that information is getting fed electrically to the flight control computers. Yeah, fascinating advancements. So what was it? We talked about back in 2016, 2017, it was coming to the fleet, and you mentioned the redundancies. So could you get into a little more, now that we have that understanding from the pilot perspective, what were the redundancies? Because a lot of the questions that we see out there is, what are you going to do when it fails? And so obviously, there's a lot of smart people thinking about that all the time. What was it over the last five years that allowed that full adoption? So the OFP is 18E140. That is the improved flight control software from the original version of the, uh, as you said, the Magic Carpet. To get the full benefit of PLM, the engineers realized that they're going to have to go through every malfunction scenario, basically, and say, can you engage PLM, yes or no? Once you got to that short list of no, they had to figure out a way, okay, so how do we get there? And then they baked that into the next version of the flight control software, and they got it down, hats off to them. Five beer for one of those guys every single time, twice on a Saturday evening because of what they brought to the fleet. But those guys got down to where if you cannot engage PLM, you cannot land on the ship anyway. So we're talking about if you ran into a flight control malfunction that drove you to lose rudder toe in or you lose your flaps, that's going to drive you to a very high approach speed where you can't safely perform a rest of the landing anyway, you're going to divert. So I'll tell you, April, we did uh, about four weeks underway on the Ford, and we at least three times Three that I'm aware of, because these are not emotional events when they occur because of the new software, I had to engage the backup mode of the auto throttles, and they landed just fine. Mm-hmm. They had all the same capability to them. It was fully transparent that they had their own backup ATC. Well, that's interesting. I guess my next question is, what if a divert's not available? Because if we're working blue water ops out there, what kind of alternatives are you looking at when you get into those failure modes? So all the same considerations, we're kind of not even talking about PLM now because those are all the same considerations that you would have if you're flying manual auto or PLM. So if you have higher purchase speeds, you're going to have that whether you intend to land a PLM, have been landing a PLM, or you've always been a manual ball flyer. Same considerations apply. The only difference now, the game changer is now you have somebody that's not proficient in flying a manual pass. I will say that it is improbable, but I will say these failure modes are highly unlikely because of the other redundancies built into the aircraft design, like having four hydraulic circuits, you know, you can operate off uh, two of them just fine. When you get to triple circuit, you're having a really, really bad day. So you're talking about a very severe compound emergency. And uh, having been flying in the F-18 community for over 20 years now, I've not come across one of those experiences or been present for or even heard of one of those while in way. Yeah. And like you're saying there, it gets into those probability versus severity. The probability exactly. is so low. Yes, it it might be severe. And there's processes that everybody will work through. But in the end, it's something the probability is so low. Not to say it can't happen, but it's low. Now, as a DCAG, have you gotten qualified in the F-35? Unfortunately, no. Probably never going to happen. I'll say that probability is very high. That's not going to (laughs) happen. We don't have F-35s in our air wing. We have the Growler, which I have flown a couple times. Magnificent machine, worth every dollar. But uh, short answer is no. 
Oh, okay. I don't know if I've found an article out there that specifically talks about it, but I, I believe that this technology kind of came from the F-35 development. Do you have any background on that? I don't have any background on that. I've heard during Ready Room Cowboy Sessions, that was one of the genesis of the points of, of this idea that, hey, we do it in the F-35, why can't we do it in a Rhino? Mm-hmm. Which seemed to be a logical way for this to come about. Yeah, from my understanding, it was like a Delta flight path mode in the F-35. But we have F-35 folks on who can maybe shed some light on that. So we've talked about the systems. We've talked about the failure modes. I think one of the most fascinating things is the potential for culture change. And so you've been living this since 2017. And you were at that pivotal moment. I remember back in February 2021, seeing the articles, seeing pictures of Admiral Meyer, Naval Air Force Atlantic, and you and Yank Cummings out there when PLM was fully adopted by VFA 106, which is, you talked about old dogs and you know, new pilots. And so now Naval Aviation had adopted at that point that we're just going to train everybody using PLM to start off with. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. So how did that come about? You being the commanding officer of the FRS at the time, you're in a pivotal place there as part of that conversation. What kind of things were going on in the conversations there? I would say that the vast majority of the people were in the camp of, hey, this is a good thing. This is the way forward. This is what we need to do. Uh, Certainly my entire paddle shop was uh, 1,000% on board with the transition. I mean, you had a couple of parochialism nuggets that were being tossed around, but quickly converted once they kind of saw the magic over time. I think that the best way to understand the culture shift, if there has been one, is to apply an operational lens to it. So my training officer when I was JO told me that, hey, look, landing on the aircraft carrier needs to become an admin function for you. Be able to do it safely every time. You're not chasing a patch. Just do it safely, get aboard, stop the first time, get that airplane parked, reloaded, and uh, on its way again, downrange. I'll never forget him saying that because his point was we really need to spend most of our bandwidth and brain power on the fight. So what I think, one of the things that PLM brings, it allows us to make a long-last landing admin so that we can spend more time focusing on the tactical execution, the brief, talking about the threats, that kind of thing, as opposed to spending a lot of time talking about just operating around the ship. We still have to do all the other things well. The case one pattern has to be done right. PLM doesn't fix that. If you're messed up on your interval, you're still going to be messed up on your interval. If you're too wide a beam, you're still going to get potentially waved off your pattern because you're too wide a beam. The art of operating around the boat is still there. The last 18 seconds has been revolutionized to make it easier for pilots to recover more consistently, safely, and spend more time focused on fight. Yeah, that's a great point on there's so much. And as, as we talk about in some of these podcasts, as we're looking more into the future, a lot of complex tactics, systems, threats. And so making this as routine as possible. And I think a lot of people might suffer from the mentality that it is routine. There's nothing routine about landing an airplane on a ship. However, these technologies are really making it as routine as possible so that we can focus on those other things. A great perspective from that training officer long ago. Yep. It's really great to hear those kinds of things when people, you know, senior guys like yourself bring out those lessons that that training officer, I'm sure he knows that he or she was affecting people in a way that would stand the test of time, but it's really great to hear those examples come out. So I appreciate that. 
If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. And so Admiral Meyer came in and that might have been the time coincidentally, but it seemed like there was a big push at that time to say, okay, let's finish talking about it. Let's fully adopt this. And that was a little over a year ago. So now that you are in the fleet, what are you seeing as the effects when you compare how squadrons were operating around the boat 10, 15 years ago to now? Are you seeing grades improved, boarding rates improved, all that kind of stuff in the fleet operations? So on the first metric of boarding rate, testament to our lineage and how good we've been in naval aviation from the beginning, believe it or not, boarding rates have not appreciably gone up. And the reason is because they've always been really good, mm-hmm. no matter what kind of pass you're flying. That's pretty awesome, uh, a point of pride. The landing grades, when I was in 81, list for top 10, if you went 15 deep on that list, they were all four O's or like three nine sixes. It came down to cutting hairs to determine who was going to get the patch and who wasn't going to get the patch. So grades absolutely have uh, skyrocketed for sure, which is a good thing. It means we're being more consistent. We're being safer. Uh, we're getting those hooked to ramp clearances where they need to be. But the boarding rate is you know, more testament, I think, to the fact that we've always been a professional organization. Yeah, that's right. And for listeners out there, boarding rate, can you just give us a quick synopsis of boarding rate? Yeah, we have a thing uh, when we do our certification where we measure our efficiencies. So combat operations efficiencies. And then we get evaluated on that before you get fully certified during our last capstone workup event, Comp2X. We have got to be able to recover aircraft at the appropriate rate, which is significant. And the reason for that is because uh, even though there's a lot of water on the planet, you know, geopolitical boundaries, we have limited sea space in most areas we go to fight. So we have to be able to give the captain the opportunity to uh, move a ship where he needs to put it. So we can't lollygag with recoveries. We have to land at the prescribed intervals. So where boarding rate is super incredibly important is because that's our contribution to make sure that the captain has that flexibility so we can put the ship where it needs to be. Yeah, basically, you know, the boarding rate, 100% is perfect. So everybody stopped first time. And so if you end up with one out of 10 pilots making an extra pass, then you're down to a 90% boarding rate. And so, like you said, you know, with constrained water and and other things going on, that we got to get the ship turned around and make the space for the next cycle, which could be an hour and 15, hour and 30 later. That's right. Over a day of flight operations, you know, if you're continually steaming into the wind, because as our listeners know, you got to be steaming into the wind to make the wind over the deck and within the limits that you need, you can eat up uh, a lot of sea space there. Yeah, a complicated problem. But now, so we said that the boarding rate really hasn't changed appreciably. 
So now I think the next question is, what are we doing as far as like training before we go out? Are we going to see a relaxation of some of the numbers that we have to provide for field carry landing practice and stuff like that? What's going on with the training before we get out to the ship? We're trying to get our arms around that. We don't want to make leaps that cause us to fall off the cliff. We want to make measured strides, get to the right number. We are seeing a reduction in the number of SLP periods required. So that comes at a uh, cost savings. We don't have to spend the, uh, as much gas turning left around the landing pattern to get ready to go to the boat. We still do it, though, because no matter how ready we think we are in terms of skill set, the value of SLPs is not just the skill set itself, the uh, stick and rudder skills, but also just getting ourselves into the right mindset that, hey, we're about to be operating from the sea now. And so that's always going to be there no matter what. But back to the first point of we don't have to do as many SLP periods, that frees up more time for tactical training. And so if you remember from the Black Knights, the world famous Black Knights, I should say. That's right. <laughs> when you get that tight turnaround after Airwing Fallon and you're going out to Comp 2X and you want to maintain some tactical proficiency because you have to go out there and execute the mission and really prove yourselves tactically, it always becomes a struggle because you also have to meet the SLP requirements. By reducing those down in a measured way as we go forward, we start to get some of the benefit, a return on investment from having that uh, additional bandwidth on the flight schedule. Yeah, the flight time. And also, I would imagine just the wear and tear in the airplanes when we're slamming into the deck 10 times on an FCLP uh, you know, training mission. That'll be interesting to see how that continues to evolve. And one of the other things, just the wear and tear on the people. You know, Like you said, you're getting ready to go out on deployment. What's the last thing that you really want to be doing? You don't want to be out there at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night going round and round. You want to be with your family and get them ready as well. So that'd be great. But in the end, we need to do that training. Because also, what are the other things that I recall doing at FCLPs, like, you know, simulated single engine, simulated no flap, you know, those kinds of things, just so that when those eventualities do come, we have that experience, let alone in the simulators too, right? Are you seeing a greater incorporation of simulator events to prepare you as well? I'd say they're about the same. So PLM, even though it has full redundancy, you have to recognize when something has put you in a position where you have to engage those redundant modes. And so one of the things we have to be incredibly careful about is auto throttles is the key to this whole thing. If you have an auto throttle failure at the worst possible moment with no indication, other than the fact that ATC indication in the HUD is no longer there, you're in a critical time during your flight. You better catch that real quick and execute your wave off. And that's actually the SOP. Once you've started a PLM pass, if you even suspect your auto throttle is not functioning properly, that is the one time PALS ain't going to hit you over the head and you can take your own wave off. It's expected. Uh, in fact, it's required. In the simulator, we focus on things like that to make sure that we're safe. Yeah. Interesting how things continue to evolve in that way. I mean, when aircraft were coming to the ship with HUD, and so we called people being HUD cripple, and you'd castigate them for having no HUD as an emergency when you're sitting there flying an airplane that really doesn't have a HUD. But now as we get into something where it's something as simple as auto throttle, if it's not working, you know, that's what we've been training on the whole time. So it is a mandatory piece now of our system and it works most of the time, right? We're not talking about something that's only working 50% of the time. Yeah. With the full redundancy backup auto throttles available in the system, I honestly can't tell you the last time I've heard of anybody flying a manual pass. Yeah. It's that reliable. When you were in 81, you said that you guys did that reverse proficiency, I think you called it. Yep. Are you guys even tracking that now? Nope. 
no need to do that. In fact, the uh, Cat 1s and the FRS, they're not flying manual passes at all. Yeah, okay. From as soon as you're in a CQ phase, you're flying Delta Path or you're flying FPAW. It's been a while since I've been at the RAG, but initially when we first started this, one FRS decided, hey, we just want these kids to pick one and stick with it because it's different enough to where you need to get really good if you don't have that level of experience to be able to go back and forth. Just be really good at one. And then the other FRS thought they can go either way anytime they want to. That's perfectly fine. In the end, it worked out for both coasts, though. So there's no right or wrong, just technique country type stuff. But they're not flying manual passes. They're doing PLM from the get-go. Well, I tell you, that's great that we're into fully adopting. So digging just a little bit more into the kind of what you think the future of training is. And, you know, we see projects Avenger, Hellcat, Corsair, which is the how we train pilots, the different primary, intermediate, and advanced. And those are ongoing projects that they continue to evaluate and really seems like they're pulling things left in the syllabus. So we're putting a lot more burden on our student able aviators, but we're providing them with the things that they need to make sure that they're successful there. You mentioned you were T-45s for the whole time. Yep. Did you do T-34 and then T-45? Yep. So again, Pink Floyd on for the future of air warfare, and he went through flight training in the 80s, and he talked about how he flew. He had a CQ in the T-2 and then CQ in the A-4. You only CQ'd one time in your training command experience, right? Yep. And now with these things that naval aviation is trying to pull left, it sounds like one of the things that might go away especially with the follow-on of the T-45 as training command CQ. Do you have any insight or have you heard much about that? I haven't been in that uh, circle discussion for well over a year now since I left 106, but uh, what I'll tell you is I would say every naval aviator upon hearing that that was going to be a thing, you know, Wentz, Nash Teeth, <laughs> want to throw their boot at something. We're naval aviators. We go to the boat. That's what makes us naval aviators. And if you're going to wear the wings, you got to earn it by going to the boat. And that's how we all thought. Once we really took a breath and took a hard look at it and you viewed it objectively, it was hard to find an argument against going the direction we're going. You know, not only in terms of time to train, but cost savings, all that stuff. But then start thinking about, I'm a great example. You just brought that up. I mean, I landed in a T-45 over the course of three days. And then since that time long ago, I've not landed or even flown a T-45. And so what I was doing is acquiring momentary skill set, very specific to that airplane in terms of how it flies and handling characteristics that I would never have to apply again. And so it begs the question of where's the connective tissue on this continuum of training between that moment, that three-day period where you're doing your initial CQ, and then when you get to the FRS and you're going to fly completely differently, not only is it a different airplane, but it's a different landing mode altogether. It's hard to refute once you get over the motion of, hey, that's how I grew up and that's how we've always done business. But if you step back and look at it objectively, you realize that that's probably the direction that we need to go. You know, the uh, Project Avenger and all the work that's being done in Sinatra, I did have a lot of conversation about that when I was at the FRS, and I'm pretty excited about what they've started there. I think we're getting it right where we're focusing on human performance. And so if the student can handle more faster, well, then let's not penalize the syllabus and make them take longer to train. That being said, if a student needs a couple extra reps and the whole model of demo, do, and then remediate, and then do again, then let's not waste the investment of time in putting that student to that point. So we're leveraging the talent, and we have a lot of talented youngsters coming in. They're definitely smarter than I'll ever be at a much earlier time in their life. But we're leveraging that talent. We're really diving deep into human performance, and this is a contact sport, you know, and so that does matter. 
I'm pretty excited about what I'm seeing there to the point where I started a conversation saying that, hey, we need to expand this once it gets to the right point. And we probably need to look at how do we really apply this model to FRS training or ACTC training, kind of training overall holistically. I think it's going down the right path. It sure sounds like it. I remember back going through flight school, we used to say as students that it seemed like 50% attrition was a job half done. Whereas (laughs) Whereas <laughs> now it's really the tailored training that you talked about, you know, taking people who are getting it and moving them more quickly through the path, but also making sure that those who need a little more time are getting that because you've already invested so much in them. As long as they can be somebody who can be a safe and effective pilot, getting them that training. And I understand they're using virtual reality and AI to work scheduling and all kinds of stuff. So really great technologies going into human performance, which is really great to see. And hopefully it'll propagate through the rest of naval aviation. For sure. One other thought I had was, I think, you know, they put an RFI out there for the follow-on for the T-45. I haven't seen anything on that in the last year or so. But if you get rid of the requirement, something for our listeners to remember is, I believe the T-45 that was not an airplane designed for a shipboard environment. So it was something that it was really kind of adapted for. If you don't have that requirement of taking that training airplane out to the ship, that ends up in a lot of cost savings as well, that you don't have to design it for that environment. Yeah. So you can get cost savings. And from those savings, you can uh, redistribute some of that money towards other advancements. So And I'm not familiar with the follow-on airframe, but I have heard anecdotally that, hey, we're going to have MFD multifunction displays just like the platform they're going to be going to. So they get acclimated early on to accessing information in a similar fashion that they're going to access in their next platform, which is goodness there. You know, there's that phrase, uh, continuum of training is something that I first heard from Admiral McCoy, who's the uh, commander at Nautic right now. And he's exactly right. We need to have connective tissue and a continuum that goes from API, or really the street, from the street to the fleet, all the way through your advanced warfare qualifications. And that all needs to flow seamlessly and be connected. I'm pretty excited that before I left 106, we did a syllabus overhaul. The first time ever, my training officer had a great idea. He said, hey, you know what? This whole continuum of training thing that you guys are talking about, that resonates with me. So when we do this FRS syllabus review, let's invite Top Gun to come over. And let's invite the weapon schools from both coasts to come over and sit in the room with us and make sure what we're developing in the syllabus is going to meet that mark for having connective tissue to the next level, which is going into the Swifty program or for some of the listeners out there, Strike Fighter Weapons Qualification Program. And we hashed it out, but it was really fun to see that you would think there'd be a little bit of friction, differing viewpoints, but there were none. There were no points of contention. It was agreed readily agreed that this is what we need to do. This is how we're going to do it. We walked in, we walked out, we have the syllabus that we need to have right now. And we are actually qualifying Cat 1s with joint helmets in the RAG. Wow. They're becoming proficient with it. Once we get to the point shortly here in the future, if not already, Cat 1 is going to check into their training officer in the first fleet assignment with the helmet that's theirs that they've been flying with. They're going to have a full MBG qualification, not just the one intro flight. And they're going to know a lot more about tactics than I ever did at that age. And so we're sending the fleet training officers much more qualified, ready round than we ever have before. And I think some of that spark came from kind of what Sinatra's doing and some of the phrases they were coining with their Project Avenger and things like that, saying that, look, we need to really think about the human performance element here. And we need to take uh, advantage of opportunities that we have to leverage the talent because these kids, 
you know, the initial anxieties were, well, we're going to give them too much to do with a helmet in addition to a BNR. And it was never an issue. Mm. And so, uh, you know, they're just smarter and they're faster. They adapt quickly. It was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, that's interesting. BNR being a breakup and rendezvous. So just a very basic thing that you guys are doing with helmet, which I listened to a podcast with a guy, the Hornet pilot, who ended up ejecting at very high speeds because he got task saturated with the helmet and he was nose down over the Atlantic. And he talked about that task saturation with the helmet. And so it does beg the question of overloading people with information early, but it sounds like it's being done in a way that they grow up with that information. So they learn how to assimilate it at an earlier point instead of adding it later on and therefore back to your connective tissue. They have their rebuild connective tissue to make sure they're incorporating all that. Absolutely spot on. Yep. One more step out in the future, because we talked recently about air combat in the 2040s, you know, FAXX and MUMT, the manned, unmanned teaming and all that kind of stuff and possibly operating as singles. Are we at anywhere yet in talking about changing the way we're landing aboard the ship, operating aboard the ship because of how much easier and routine it is? Or are we sticking? It sounds like we're sticking to the case one, case two, case three patterns that we know and love. Yeah, we absolutely are. There's the models at work. They're enduring. There's no reason to change them. They're efficient. They're safe. Everybody's familiar with it. PLM really comes down to that at last 18 seconds. Or mm. if you're flying at night or you're doing a straight in, everything that happens after three miles, uh, when you pitch over to intercept your glide slope for the straight in, that's what PLM buys you. All the other stuff still has to be taught, has to be learned, has to be practiced, be good at. And it still allows future naval aviators, at least for a little while, to break it off at the stern and bring it around for that okay two passer. <laughs> it can still be done. Yep. That's good. That's good. So we do have some listener questions. These are from Patreon supporters out there who support the podcast. So they're provided the opportunity to send in some questions ahead of time. One of them, Joe Kunzler, he's a pretty frequent with providing questions. I think we've covered some. He had a whole list of them. Um, uh, we talked about how Magic Carpet PLM was developed and it is in Super Hornets and Growlers right now is the two platforms, right? And then Magic Carpet, that's always one of those. I jumped into the conversation for listeners out there, maritime augmented guidance and integrated controls for carrier approach and recovery precision enabling technologies. That's a mouthful. I'm kind of glad it got switched over to PLM. Do you know his question is why PLM and not Magic Carpet for a name? You know, I'm not going to be able to offer a great answer on that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, OJ. (laughs) (laughs) you know i'll be honest with you i wouldn't care if they called it the junkyard dog i embrace (laughs) it i love it i don't care what they call it that's a game changer that's great one of his next questions we were just talking about the joint helmet so does plm project on the helmet or is it just on the hud it's only on the hud yeah it's on the hud you have symbology additional symbology used to not be there the helmet gets blank for safety otherwise you'd be looking at ghost images and you already got enough to look at without two huds so so how much does PLM improve the graduation rates of flight students? I think we kind of touched on that, but did you have anything else to offer with that? I will say that it improves the first pass yield, which is first attempt at the boat. The whole time I was at VFA 106, once to start PLM, we only had one student that had to go back to the boat a second time. And it was not because of landing, it was because of other procedures. Because hmm. it's dark out there. <laughs> <laughs> it is. However, when he came back out the second time, he was throwing darts, had no problem. He's in the fleet right now. So it's only making it better. 
That's great. One of the things, the article that you were featured in back in February 21, I thought an interesting comment you made going back to your FRS um, time there was that it also, because of the success you were seeing with those Cat 1s, it was reducing the amount of time needed to get those Cat 1s through instead of spending three, four, five days out there on these aircraft carriers, which are already overtasked as it is between maintenance and operations that you were able to do it in a shorter period of time. And really what it comes down to is there's a lot of art to CQ. We always go out there and we'll do everything we possibly can to welcome new brothers and sisters to the fleet. And sometimes uh, what that means is if you got a kid that's starting to struggle, I shouldn't say kid, these are all young warriors, but you have an aviator that's struggling a little bit, we're not going to let them dig a hole that's so deep they can't get back out the next day. And so we will sideline that particular pilot and then pull them out of the jet, let them get something to eat, breathe, and we'll talk about it and go back out the next day and set that person up for success. We don't have to sideline people because they're throwing darts. They're doing great. And so that does cut back on significantly on the time. I shouldn't say significantly because we don't often have to do that, but it does cut back on the time. Mm-hmm. And back to our future of training aircraft, if we just get rid of that requirement, it also frees up those carriers from having to do those FRS CQs, at least for strike fighters and growlers. Are we seeing any kind of technologies in the E2D? You know, C2 is going away. Uh, the V22 is going to land like a helicopter. But are we seeing anything in the E2D to make them more successful in this? So there is absolutely some initiative to look into that. I think it's going to be extremely challenging. We just got back from Air to Air SPARP, which is, as you know, our advanced readiness program, air warfare training down in Key West. I was done with my syllabus. And so my last day of flying there, I flew the E2D. It was very apparent to me why this is a challenge. Because when you add power, you have to step on a rudder. <laughs> when you reduce power, you have to step on a rudder. If you turn left or right, you have to step on a rudder. And so it's much more complicated than when you have a generally centerline thrust jet aircraft. There are many more forces you have to account for. So short answer is yes. OJ's opinion, I think we're going to get there. I think it's going to take some time. Great. It comes up in my emails, YouTuber, as Gundog4314, but why, if at all, isn't the E2CD or remaining C2 some of the first aircraft to get this from earlier podcasts? Those platforms are notorious for difficulty landing, not to mention the expense of them and missions. But also the E2D, I mean, that's all bell cranks and rods. It's not a fly-by-wire system, right? That's correct. So that's going to be more problematic to try to advance in the same way. Yep. Michael Durkus from Slovakia. He says, greetings from Slovakia. How often are pilots using the system? How precise is the system if you compare it to ICAO landing categories? Which types of naval aircraft are able to use the system? So I think we've touched on a lot of this, but as far as precision, really now you're talking about the ACLS, the Automatic Carrier Landing System follow-on, JPALS, which you're using out there in the fleet now? We are. So that's more of a, I think, a JPALS question than PLM, because PLM is just the stick and throttle about being on glide slope and line up. How's JPALs working out there? Uh, good. Yeah. You know, transparent to us because all you care about is there's a little circle to put the big circle on. <laughs> that's right. Crosshairs when that's not there with the bullseye or ICLS, which is the uh, Navy's version for embarked uh, ILS for the people familiar with those systems. I will say that if I were to open up NATOPS and count under the chapter for PLM, the number of times it says, Precision, precise, don't fight the system. It's smarter than you are. <laughs> I may not have to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, 
it's an incredibly reliable, incredibly accurate, incredibly consistent system. Okay. Jevon Diva asks, in my line of work, the most advanced tools only work in ideal situations when you need them least. And conversely, we have to revert to older, more robust, but less advanced tools for the really challenging situation. Is this also true for PLM, i.e., are there any C states in which PLM would be too risky, screws out of the water? And if so, would that theoretically increase the risk to aviators who now have to use their decreased proficiencies to land in worse than usual conditions? So you're up there in the North Atlantic. You got some really bad sea state. You as a pilot, you're still using PLM, right? Absolutely. It actually brings down the stress, I think. And even though you have more time to scan other things that you probably shouldn't be scanning, you're probably not going to stare at the screws coming out of the water. Meatball lineup angle attack still. No, I only did that once in my career. I've never done it again because it was scary. (laughs) To answer this question, it's a great question to ask because one thing we haven't talked about is the LSO perspective on PLM. Mm -hmm. And so after the very first CQ class we had with Cat 1s and the FRS going out there, force paddles, you know, it came up at the end of the night and asked him, how's it going? How's everybody doing from your perspective? And his response was, I feel like nobody needs me anymore because he only gave, you know, one correction on glide slope. The rest of it, the students were just like darts, which speaks volumes to, you know, when an inexperienced group of aviators uh, doing something for the very first time, get over that mental obstacle and then just let the airplane do its magic. It's pretty impressive. And so from the LSO perspective, that perspective, but also if you have a uh, pitching deck, you know, the key there is to be predictable. And so if you get to an on on start, which is the contract you have with paddles, show up to an on on start where you're on center line, you're on glide slope, they can talk you down. Since the system is consistent and reliable, if they tell you you're a little high, work it down, they know the rate at which that your airplane should be coming down, and they know when to tell you you're on glide slope. They don't have to lead it as much because ability to aircraft instantaneously recapture that three and a half degree glide slope. So it's actually safer in those conditions. I won't say you take out the variable of, you know, overshooting glide slope when you're giving a correction by the LSOs, but you make it a lot more consistent that you're going to give the response to paddles that they're looking for. Yeah. Great point of the paddles perspective. So you're still practicing and using Movelis for them to be able to also control your aircraft a little more through the Movelis system, right? Absolutely. And then another one I thought of is that for our listeners, you know, if it's calm winds out there and the ship's making all the wind, then the ship's going 25 knots or whatever. And so that runway that you're trying to land on is moving to the side at some rate of speed. And so you can, you know, work in that lineup, especially in close. If, you know, sometimes we see a big lineup correction in close and you end up drifting across the runway as you're landing, the landing areas you're landing, which can obviously get people in trouble if it's excessive. But with this system, are you seeing more people rolling out on centerline? Lineup is still a thing. It's still hard. So I would say that it's no harder or easier, only in the sense that it's easier to fix. So mm-hmm. the aircraft is going to capture and maintain the commanded glide slope. If you're lined up to the left, you, make, you need to make a correction to the right. You don't have to worry about deviating if you're in delta path where it's locked in at three and a half degrees, you don't have to worry about making a power correction or a longitudinal stick input in order to make sure that you, when you decrease lift, you know, generally start to increase your VSI. That doesn't happen PLM because it's capturing that glide slip. So you're just steering the airplane without having to almost, almost not having to worry about the glide slip deviation. Mm-hmm. You know, we get people that are fighting lineup 
and then glide slope falls out of their scan. So instead of looking at the ball, the lineup, and the angle of attack, their scan goes lineup, 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 lineup. <laughs> Wait a minute, what's my glide slope saying? And then they realize, holy smokes, I made four lineup corrections, killing a lot of lift, and now I'm looking at three balls low, and I'm below glide slopes. So now I got to fix that and still fight the lineup. Now you just got to fix the lineup, and if you miss a scan on the ball, you shouldn't. But if you did, when you went back to it. As long as you didn't push or pull on the stick, you should be where you left it. Yeah. It makes it easier to fix. You still have to find it. Still have to get there off the approach turn, but it's easier like everything else in PLM. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, I think that's been a really great conversation about PLM, the future of training, you know, how things are staying the same and what's changing. So I really appreciate all that perspective. I do have an image when you talked about that uh, street to the fleet mindset. I mean, a lot of the true kids, you know, the 10-year-olds and stuff who are going to be naval aviators later on, they're so wedded to PlayStation and Xbox and stuff. Sometimes I wonder if the FAXX, which is going to be the true single-seat Wizzo cockpit out there, is going to be bring your own PlayStation controller to control it. I mean, it's going to be amazing to see what technologies go into the platform like that. You hit on it earlier, but the battle space is only more complicated, threats only more advanced. And the uh, weapon systems and tactics are only, you know, to keep up, they're going to have to be sophisticated and complex too. So you're right. You know, something that you don't see in the movies is uh, just how much tactical knowledge you have to bring into the airplane in order to fight the airplane effectively. As you remember, it's a tremendous amount of studying and investment of time to bring all that knowledge to bear when you need to. So I think you're right. You know, the faster you can move your fingers and move your eyes and keep track of where the car and all the monsters are going on the screen. (laughs) Might be a good fit for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you're DCAG of CAG-8 now. You've been doing that for a little bit. You guys are working up with Ford. What's the future hold for you? Kind of what you can talk about short-term and long-term. Yeah, so this is an exciting time. So the Ford, uh, we're in workups formally. We just, uh, the entire Air Wing completed their platform-specific ARPS or Advanced Readiness Training. And so we're marching forward towards being deployable which is pretty exciting because when it happens, it's going to be the inaugural deployment of the first in class, the Ford. Exciting to be a part of that and talk about capabilities. That ship's bringing a lot of capabilities, uh, which we can't talk about, uh, <laughs> but boy, that ship, taxpayers are getting their money's worth out of it. Oh, that's great. I know it's been a long, hard process trying to leap ahead in a lot of technologies, but like everything, you know, the A model of everything kind of get it out the door and, and keep developing. So it's really great to see Ford on the verge of, heading out there and, and definitely we'll be thinking about you and, and the rest of your CAG-8 team and your Ford team out there as you steam across the Atlantic later on and go wherever you need to go. So, OJ, I really appreciate you having on. I really appreciate your time. Wish you and the family the best. So thanks for joining us today. No, I appreciate the opportunity again. Super great to catch up to you, Flounder. Uh, again, let's not count the number of years since the uh, last time we were able to talk to each other face-to-face, but it's been an absolute pleasure. And again, I appreciate the uh, opportunity. So, Flounder, I mean, wow. This completely boggles my mind. I mean, this showed up after I left the Navy. And there's so many things to unpack here. I don't even know where to begin. But PLM changes everything. This is crazy. Yeah, you're right, Jello. This changes so much. I mean, we started seeing this stuff coming in a few years ago, but now with full adoption of it, it's really amazing. Makes me jealous. And it's really great for the aviators out there who have to utilize PLM now to land on the ships. 
Well, and I had asked my buddy Grand, who's been on the show a few times because he's flown with it. We go fishing from time to time. And I asked him, I was like, is it really that good? He goes, Jello, it's like cheating. I mean, compared to what we're used to, right? Because uh, <laughs> we had to work so hard for everything. It's like when I first flew with AESA, I'm like, oh, this is like cheating. But yeah, he said, you make like OJ said, right? You make one or two corrections and that's it. I don't want to say it takes the fun out of it, but I think OJ really summed it up. I mean, it makes it easier, mm-hmm. it makes it safer. And there's still other things you can screw up. And by all means, right, well, <laughs> naval aviators can figure out a way. But it's crazy how much it changes from what I spent my career doing. Yeah, it's that revolution in the last 18 seconds. You know, mm-hmm. and could we talk, is it a revolution? Is it an evolution? And I think he made great points about you still need the essay in the carrier environment. And he talked about as the FRSCO having a sideline one person. And it was really about the situational awareness in the carrier environment. It wasn't about the actual landing of the aircraft. And so it's really great stuff. I'm really proud of the whole enterprise to get into this point. All right. So I did take some notes when I listened and I'll just cover them in roughly chronologic order. First off, I really thought his story about not having perfect eyesight is an inspiration for those out there who also don't, but wish to be fighter pilots someday because here's living proof of a guy that made it work. Yeah, I think it's really great. And, you know, when I think about the Fighter Pop podcast, I think about, you know, us uh, retired former aviators as one segment of the listening population. But folks like Will, who just have been selected for naval aviation and they're excited about that and people looking for that motivation. So I agree with you. I think it's a really great story about somebody who had a vision from a long time ago and made it happen. Speaking of long time ago, the term classic. Hornet sort of hurt a little. I'm not going to lie, but I like that over the legacy Hornet. I think classic is good. (laughs) It's got a little bit more panache to it. I agree. Now tell me about VF 102 Diamondbacks, right? Because at VFA 86 in our both first tour there, we were really big as a squadron on carrier grades. I mean, I got it, but I didn't, right? The byproduct of good grades is safety. And so again, I don't know if I have an actual question here or not, but my squadron was big on grades and I feel like this is going to make that administrative. And I guess that was the point. Yeah, I think it was interesting because how are you going to be handing out top 10 patches when you know the top 10 folks are getting the same grade? And as long as those grades, those high grades are reflective of that consistent, safe performance, I think that's another one of the cultural things that's going to have to change. But the important part about it is that they're being safe and effective with those continuously high boarding rates. I think that the squadrons like the T-Bolts, who really just had the happy faces and sad faces, <laughs> going to make it easier for them. <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting part of the cultural transformation. Well, the Marines in the air wing were always a lot of fun. But yeah. uh, also, he talked about, oh gosh, I don't want to use the wrong word here, but like LSOs being a little less of uh, save the day. I mean, again, I'm probably going in a dangerous direction here. There's always going to be LSOs, but it's interesting how it's going to change it. Yeah, I think that that perspective from uh, Force Paddles, where he just felt like he was almost useless out there, which begs the question of complacency. You know, mm-hmm. is there going to be a situation on a beautiful day out there where people just get too relaxed? Because like you said, naval aviators, there are mm-hmm. ways that this will be messed up. Pilot error will always be a problem that we have to deal with and train to. But is there somebody out there who unfortunately is going to get so complacent where they could have acted a couple seconds earlier to stop something from happening? 
Well, and I don't know the full investigation, whether complacency was a culprit or not, but isn't this effectively what happened in January of 22 with an F-35? And you even said it in the interview, you know, breaking it off at the stern, right? So that's coming in fast, breaking soon and swinging around for hopefully the cool OK-2 or 3 as I'm used to. But Mm. I think a lot of that was at play in the F-35 mishap on Carl Vinson. I would be interested to read the report, certainly with the stuff that's out there. It sure seems that that was part of it. I mean, human error all around creates that chain, and it's up to somebody to break that chain to make sure something like that doesn't happen. Well, and I've always wondered this, even though I was in a squadron that did the same thing. When someone said VFA 86 Sidewinders, we'd always say, who said Sidewinders? (laughs) And you set them up. I could tell he was (laughs) queued up, ready for it. But any idea who said Sunliners, who said Sidewinders? Such a random thing. Any idea where that came from? No idea. And honestly, it was one of those while I was in the air wings with Sidewinders and then Sunliners Uh later that I was like, oh my God, seriously. (laughs) But it's fun now, years later, to trigger people. I think I must have lost it somewhere along the way because I don't do it anymore. But uh, yeah, it was a clear setup. You know, both of those squadrons are also orange. Yeah. So I don't know if uh, (laughs) (laughs) that has anything to do with it. Hey, do you remember at Hook, at least I did, maybe you met some of the first no VT carrier qual students. They were running around at Hook. Yeah, there were a few out there. Um, I had a great conversation with Admiral Meyer at Whidbey and then at Hook as well about that progression. I think it's exciting, you know, and, and I love how... OJ talked about it with the, uh, you know, gnashing of the teeth. You got to go to the boat to be a naval aviator. But there's a lot of ways that we can do things a little bit smarter, given the technologies we have now and make sure we're not compromising the quality and actually using that to then invest in areas where we really need to invest in, in that complex tactics and all that kind of good stuff. Well, and speaking of that, right? Navy helicopter pilots, Navy P-3 or now P-8 pilots, they all wear the same wings as I do. That's right. They're still wings of gold. And and in the end, those folks are going to be taken off and landing from ships. And we're still going to have, unfortunately, folks, you know, coming off the front end on dark nights in bad weather, potentially with some problem after the catch shot. And they're going to earn those wings of gold at those times. And so it's not Mm. just because you did it at the training command. You do it every day. You keep earning those wings every day and night. Amen. So tell me more about this. Someone ejected because of overload on the joint helmet. I actually was not familiar with that. I forget where I was when this happened. It was out of the East Coast, out of Oceana, and it was an F-18 guy. I listened to a, a great podcast. He was a guest on Keegan Gill's his name. Basically, my recollection of it was that he was kind of around a mid-tour lieutenant he had been learning without the helmet and then had the helmet introduced. And so basically kind of gets overwhelmed in an engagement, ends up nose low, too low, and ends up in a very high-speed ejection, very serious harm to his body, and was very lucky to survive. But that loss of situational awareness because of the information coming in and not really piecing together how to work through that problem certainly was contributory to that high-speed ejection. So I thought it was interesting when OJ talked about bringing that training to the left into the FRS and basically delivering a full-up round pilot with that helmet training and with goggle training and all that kind of stuff. It's a long, long way from where you and I came out of the FRS many years ago. 
Well, and maybe mishaps like that are what lead us to have discussions like, I think at one point in the conversation, you said single seat Wizzo platform, which strikes me as really crazy, but also thought provoking, right? Because right now, most of the fifth generation fighters, at least in the US inventory, are all single piloted, right? Quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Maybe someday it might be better to have someone who's on there who can execute whatever needs to be done, but is not necessarily flying the airplane. I mean, if you and I ever flew together, and I don't believe we did, but right, you could argue, hey, I'm just your stick monkey. I'll go where you tell me and you're going to sort or shoot or do what we got to do. Of course, we work together as a crew and in the F generally, but is this a thing? Are people really talking about? I mean, you and Pink had some conversations around this, but yeah. single seat Wizzo platform. I don't know. Tell me about more. <laughs> yeah, that's something that I started thinking about a number of years ago. In my mind, it's the concept that as we make landing easier, you know, those kinds of classic piloting things easier on any given day, then it's really that assimilation of information in that combat environment where mm. we've got a huge amount of information coming in and we're really a weapon systems officer integrating that information, making the right decisions, especially when you start dealing with man-on-man teaming and other elements in the joint operating environment that the piloting becomes very secondary and you're doing that weapon systems officer stuff. But ultimately, they're single-seat pilots. <laughs> All right. Well, at one point, I think one of you said Movelis, which you and I understand is the manually operated visual landing aid system. And instead of you seeing a certain ball on the lens based on where you are on glide slope, it's the LSO showing you what he or she wants basically with your power. And so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how Movelis and PLM go together, but that's what that is. You know, and with that, I think as LSOs, again, never was one, but I'm thinking with Movelis, you had to kind of lead, anticipate mm. that correction, whereas now the aircraft's going to instantaneously capture that position on glide slope. So again, is it going to modify the behavior just a little bit where you know you're going to get a little more rapid response out of the platform? So a uh, good part of the conversation. Yeah. Now you recorded this, what, back in summer, probably, right? Yeah, that's right. It was uh, back in summer. Because the Ford already went out and did, I think, like a two-month deployment, probably just to like make sure everything is going to work okay. So they didn't go further than, I think, the Eastern Atlantic. But it's already back from that. And I don't know. Have you heard anything more on how it went? Or was he out there on that? Yep, he sure was. And so I haven't talked to OJ since he just came back recently. I'm sure he's got other things to attend to. But we definitely welcome him back and the Black Lions and everybody else that were out there on Ford. I saw that they were in Portsmouth on a port call. So, you know, I had to be good throwing the flag out there, having fun, but able to kind of run forward through its paces and get some good transatlantic and operations. All right. Well, that was all I had for the discussion. The last thing I have was you seem to forget a call sign story again. Am I going to have to scratch you off my Christmas card list? <laughs> no, I'd say, uh, you know, give me two reflies and uh, I'll see if I can make it better. But yeah, okay. Uh, and I remember I met OJ when he was a uh, rag instructor. And the first time that he walked in, I knew exactly where his call sign came from. If you saw the um, Austin Powers movies, the odd job character. So there's a little bit of similarity there in, in some ways. So I'm sure when he walked into his first ready room, when Austin Powers was a big deal, it was up mm-hmm. oh, your call signs, OJ. 
All right. So I don't know if we want to go down this path or not, but the world continues to become more and more politically correct. So at some point, did someone say, we're basing that on the way this person looks or maybe even his nationality, so we better just shorten it to OJ so there's not this connection? Yeah, we've seen that with a lot of call signs from you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's been, uh, hey, let's just either come up with a new call sign or a different way to represent it. So going from odd job to OJ. And so, um, yeah, that's the natural progression. So be it. That's the world we live in. But uh, anyway, big thanks again to OJ and Flounder. Same to you for a really just exciting and amazing interview. I just learned so much. Yeah, well, great. I really enjoyed the opportunity. And, you know, as you mentioned before the interview, the last one that we aired was before the fight's on. It was the space flight. That was a lot of fun. And, you know, since then, we've seen the Artemis One launch and going around the moon. And so it's just really fun digging into these topics and looking at how they're reflecting the future of air warfare and by extension kind of space. That was a fun side, but really great time. Thanks a lot. Hey, before we wrap up today, let's shift gears briefly to discuss a new air-to-surface weapon in development by our friends over at Raytheon Missiles and Defense. It's called the Joint Strike Missile, and here to help us learn more is former U.S. Air Force F-15 Eagle pilot Jimmy Clark. Jay Ray, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Thank you, Jello. Glad to be here. Awesome. Hey, so let's start off broadly. What is the Joint Strike Missile, and why is it important? So JSM is a long-range, air-launched, surface and maritime attack missile. It was developed originally by Kongsberg Defense and Aerospace, a Norwegian company. Raytheon is now partnered with Kongsberg to market and produce joint strike missile for customers really across the world. But what joint strike missile does from its air launch position, it has the ability to cruise into highly defended enemy territory and find targets that are either land-based or on the surface and attack those targets with very high success rates. Okay. So it is a, a missile, right? So it's propelled. It's not a glide weapon like a JSAL, let's say. Correct. Well, what else sets apart the JSM from other munitions? So the difficulty, you know, is, as you understand, the bad guys have gotten very good about defending the things that, uh, that are important to them. And we refer to these as highly contested environments. You'll also hear the term area denial, space. So it's airspace that's very difficult to get into and prosecute attacks on enemy targets. What the JSM brings to the fight are several features. One is it can be carried internally on its primary platform, which is F-35, which allows the F-35 to get in close enough to fire the missile, but also stay out of harm's way from those enemy threats. But then once JSM leaves the platform and starts uh, cruising to the intended target, it has some very unique survivability features that include controlled signatures, very low altitude flying, speed, salvo attacks that allow the missile to penetrate these very complex defenses. And then as it gets closer to the thing that it's trying to attack, it has some very unique maneuverability features. It's very agile, which allows it to survive against uh, close-in threat systems that other missiles cannot survive against. Okay, I can uh, read between the lines there on that. That makes sense. And that's probably an important capability to have as these close-in defenses get more and more capable. What aircraft besides the F-35 are going to be able to carry the JSM? Right now, it's just integrated on the F-35, but it's capable really across the whole fighter fleet, if you will, the whole bomber fleet to include unmanned systems uh, is something that we're looking at. 
Oh. There've already been fit checks on, for example, FA-18s with the Navy. One story we like to tell is if any of your viewers or, or listeners have uh, seen the new Top Gun movie, that mission that they trained for through the whole movie could have been done by a JSM launched from feet wet. So before they even crossed the coast, they could have launched the JSM and it could have done that entire mission. Now that's interesting, Jimmy, because I've had people on our YouTube channel respond to our reaction video that we did. And they asked that very question, Hey, why not just send cruise missiles? So they'll generally say, right. If they don't know the terminology better. And one answer I've always given them as well, they had this scenario of they needed penetration. So again, not asking you to divulge too much here, but am I wrong? Is the JSM going to bring some penetration capability? Absolutely. Yep. Through those defenses, Climbing uh, up the steep side of that crater, doing the pitch over back down to the target, all of that JSM will do on its own. All right. So where can people learn more about the JSM? At www.raytheonmissilesanddefense.com would be the first stop and also on all our social media sites. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us today, Jay Ray. Best wishes to you and the entire Raytheon Missiles and Defense team as you introduce this new and very important weapon. Thank you, Jello. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak about it. All right, then. Well, we can wrap this up by introducing our new Patreon supporters. We got lots of them because we haven't announced them in the last three months. And I'll probably mess up some of the pronunciations, so apologies in advance. But we have Strike Leads, David Metters, Anthony Juan, DJ Stakinik, Al Jackson, Ruben Rodriguez, and Christopher Baca, and one new mission commander, Mike Hindle. And I've had a few conversations with Mike. One of the perks at the higher levels is he and I get a 30-minute debrief every month. And I think one or two of these guys sometimes ask for someone else. Flounder, I might have had you do one, I think. I can't remember now. I haven't gotten the opportunity to do one of those yet. Okay. Well, it's not a popularity contest, but I do tell them, eh, depending on who it is, you can ask if you can talk with someone else. But anyway, Patreon is always a lot of fun, and uh, it gives us a chance to connect with these folks. All right. Well, as a reminder, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. That's going to do it for this episode. And man, what a ride it's been. Hold on, Jello. That's not quite it yet. I'm sure you got something to update us on. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I did promise that. Well, you know what? That is kind of you to ask. Yeah, I have actually a rather big announcement. In January, I will report to my airline to be converted into captain, if you can believe it. The Navy wasn't willing, but my airline is. And I don't have to change bases. I don't have to change aircraft. I get paid a lot more. Now I got to have the answers to everything because I can't just point to the captain. The first officer will be pointing at me. And yeah, that's exciting. So that happens in January. That is exciting there, Captain Jello. But that's not <laughs> what I was referring to. I think you got some updates on the Fighter Pilot Podcast for 2023. Very good. Yes, I have been hinting at this for a while. Our Patreon supporters are aware because they've seen some of it. We are pivoting to video, Flounder. In fact, if we were starting from scratch, I would tell people we're starting a YouTube channel. But we're not starting from scratch. We have five years of experience and a fun audience who seems to appreciate our content. So in 2023, we are going to, I'm going to try weekly posts, believe it or not, weekly episodes on Fridays. They're going to come out on YouTube and there'll be video there and images of what the guest and I are talking about and even some videos on what we're talking about. For you diehards out there who listen either when you're exercising or running or doing the dishes or whatever, we will still have an audio version, but it'll be a little more sterile than what you're used to. We're not going to have the announcements and listener questions. It's going to essentially just be the interview. 
So that is the plan for 2023. And Flounder, I know you and a couple of other co-hosts who help out have agreed to give it a try when you're recording like you did with OJ. You'll turn on your video and we'll see if we can't get it. Sort of like the uh, folks did there, Crunch and Bio for the F14 Tomcast. We'll just get you wherever you are or with whatever background and, and we'll play that. So yeah, I'm excited. I mean, we've been stockpiling episodes and it's a different animal, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, well, it is exciting. It's great to see you having gotten to this point with five years of experience and all that development and podcasting and now jumping into YouTube. And it's aggressive and I like that and really looking forward to some great content. And I think it'll be an interesting new direction because just after five years, I feel like I might just need something new to keep it fresh. You know how like a Corvette, uh, you know, it's a successful model, but every few years they redesign it. I thought you were going to say you got a Corvette. No, no, no. I didn't get a Corvette, but like a Corvette that gets remodeled or any car for that matter, you know, just to do something new keeps it fresh. And we have a studio, which is fun out here in San Diego that I go to. And I'm finding the hard part, of course, is if we're going to record in studio, then it's got to be people either in San Diego or that I can fly in for the day or whatever the case might be. So I'm sure we'll have some growing pains, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the transition to video in 2023. Well, great stuff. A lot of good things in the year ahead. Yeah, for sure. Flounder, you have been a great friend of the show. So glad to have you be part of this journey as well as the compelling interviews you provide and hope everything continues to go well with your newfound civilian life and your job. So thanks again for uh, your support. Thank you, Jello. It's been a lot of fun. As for everyone else, we'll have a little bonus on the 25th, probably a replay of the NORAD Santa Tracker. Otherwise, look for us on Friday, January 6th for our new format and video. Until then, happy holidays, be well, and thanks for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.